Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Welcome back, listeners, and I am very excited to offer the first CME series on Pediatric Meltdown. The following will describe the CME activity and all of the information that you will need to claim CME will also be in the instructions at the end of the podcast. This episode is one of a three-part series of podcasts on autism spectrum disorders. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the joint providership of Michigan State University and the Michigan Chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Michigan State University is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Michigan State University designates this Internet Enduring Material activity for a maximum of 1.0 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. All planners, reviewers, and faculty presenters have nothing to disclose. The following commercial organization, Cognoa, provided non-restricted educational grants to support this CME activity. Participants will be able to claim CME by reading the activity instructions for participants using the guide in the show notes, and the CME claim link will also be listed in the show notes. The target audience is physicians, physician assistants, and nurses in the specialty area of pediatrics. Learning objectives include objective number one, recognize the core features of autism spectrum disorders and the nuances that often delay diagnosis at the higher end of the spectrum. Objective two, describe three of the early intervention strategies. Objective three, reflect and discuss on the perspective of individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their voiced needs from pediatric healthcare clinicians throughout childhood and into young adulthood. I am delighted to introduce today's guest, Dr. Susan Hyman, to the podcast and really look forward to this conversation. Dr. Susan Hyman is a board-certified developmental behavioral pediatrician. She is Chief of the Division of Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics at the University of Rochester, which includes outpatient specialty services dedicated to diagnosis and ongoing medical consultation and behavioral care for children and youth with autism and other developmental disabilities for a large region of central and western New York. The division provides interprofessional education for pediatric nursing and other trainees and has a service that engages in community consultation. She is the co-principal investigator of the Rochester site of the Autism Cares Network, sponsored by Autism Speaks. Her research interests include medical care and behavioral interventions for children and youth with autism spectrum disorders, diet and nutrition in children with autism, among other areas. She has been very active in the American Academy of Pediatrics, with a focus on supporting the primary care pediatrician in the identification and care of youth with autism and other developmental disorders in the medical home. Dr. Hyman served 14 years as the chair of the Autism Subcommittee and six years on the Executive Committee of the Council on Children with Disabilities. To further these goals, she and her team have been actively involved in ECHO Autism for practices in the Central and Western New York region. Dr. Hyman is one of the lead authors on the AAP Clinical Report on the Identification, Evaluation, and Management of Children with Autism Spectrum Disorder, published in Pediatrics in January of 2020. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Susan Hyman. Hi, Susan. How are you? Good, thank you. And yourself? I am good. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. I know you must be extraordinarily busy 
I want to just dive right in and talk about this clinical report that you, along with others, wrote, which is really extensive. And there is so much content that I think every pediatrician who sees children who could potentially have autism needs to have it on their bookshelf. It may take some time to go through and really do it justice, but it's just such good stuff. So, but before we get into that, why don't you tell me just a little bit about your journey and how did you get to authoring this report? I'm a developmental behavioral pediatrician. I'm also boarded in neurodevelopmental disabilities and have been the division of developmental behavioral pediatrics at the University of Rochester for 25 years now. And those 25 years have seen an incredible change in how we diagnose autism, who's diagnosed with autism, how we treat autism, and the collaborations that a specialist needs to have to support families and patients with autism and other developmental disabilities. One of the things that I have found incredibly important, care for families of children with disabilities, is collaboration with the primary care provider, medical home. So even though it is only one aspect of what we do, Partnering with the Academy of Pediatrics has been invaluable in getting education out, how to identify, how to care for children with disabilities, how to support the families. And the AAP has really been a very strong partner in helping shape the practices necessary to care for complex pediatric needs. Um, and to lead the advocacy that's necessary for policy to support um, children and families across systems, since medicine is only one of the systems involved. That's a long answer to a short question. No, that's perfect. I think you struck on a couple things. One is the role of the American Academy of Pediatrics in really culminating this information collating it and then getting it out to where it needs to be. I think it's just a huge undertaking and the reach is so great. I mean, with nearly well, got 67,000 members, that's a lot of pediatricians. Right. And the advocacy piece is so important. So um, the clinical report needed to be updated. The original clinical report on autism was in 2012. And, you know, for your listeners that were practicing in 2012, it really was a different world. You know, this is almost a decade or a decade later. We have a, an increase in our recognized prevalence. We've had increased advocacy through family groups so that parents know what to ask for. We've had an evolution of services. Really, I think that the whole complex care movement has really shifted the dialogue so that the medical home is really at the center of caring for people, patients, children, and adults with complex needs because the the tertiary care institutions don't have the bandwidth. And there's also the recognition that people really need care where they live. They need to build relationships and care needs to be close and accessible. And I tell my patients sometimes, I, of course, need the input and the support and the expertise of the experts, the subspecialists. But I sort of see my job as being a conductor of an orchestra of very complicated pieces and that I can be their point person and I can be the one to run tag team when need be. I wish we had sometimes more time to have care conferences. I've had a couple of really complicated patients, not necessarily with autism and when I was able to sit down at the table, literally at a table, and talk with the other people that were involved in this child's care, I mean, we were able to come up with on a whiteboard, and it was just so helpful. And the mom was there too. And maybe with this world of Zoom, we can do these conferences virtually, but you know, it takes time for people to do that. But it is so helpful for children when we're all on the same page. Right. One of the things that the past decade has seen has been increased awareness of both the social determinants of health and how they affect health, but also 
the interaction of systems. And in the olden days, when we first started thinking about transition to adulthood, you know, we knew that children with autism grew up and became adults, and we knew that they needed to have adult doctors. But we didn't think that as pediatricians, that score that you're holding as the conductor also includes what do you do about leisure so that they have active fitness activities for wellness? What do you do about where are they going to live when their parents get old? What are you going to do about employment? Employment really is a, a, an important factor to ongoing health and wellness. What do you do about socialization when school ends and you don't have the mandatory structure? What do you do about guardianship? That when you look at all these other things, finding an internist is really a pretty small problem. It's a big problem, but it's small compared to where are they going to work and live. And the pediatrician is in a unique position to help families with this, this odyssey, guide them through. But their partners are the school, the social agencies, the employers in the, com the community, and how to make that work and even how to begin the conversation is really something that's incumbent upon all of us and all the systems we live in. I think I've learned that more from my parents and patients than me being clever on my own. In fact, uh, spoiler alert, the third podcast in this series is actually with two young men who both um, are on the spectrum and they talk about just those things you're mentioning, their jobs, where they live, um, their mother, who's a special education teacher, was so instrumental in orchestrating some of that, but so much of it they did on their own, and they're so proud of it. I mean, there's just some wonderful things that they say, one of which I think is a big myth was that having your own social circle, your own peer circle, like I think there's some myth that, you know, people with autism don't care or not interested in other people. And that couldn't be further from the truth. That, that's really true. And I think, you know, the pediatrician, the healthcare provider is in a unique position because you have repeated contact in as a well person, not as a sick person. And, you know, you have to remember that children and teens with autism should have the same well child care and wellness approach that you have with all your other patients. You know, when they enter middle school, somebody has to give them the sex, drugs, and rock and roll talk and has to prepare the family for sexuality and be prepared when a teen or a young adult with autism asks you about gender fluidity. And you can't assume that they don't have the exact same issues as everyone else, and sometimes more so. And you know, I think that one of the goals of the clinical report is to remind pediatricians, yes, screen for depression, talk about sexuality, talk to the parents about the plans for the future if the teen is less able and is, can't be involved in that discussion fully. And that's really, you know, that's a change in all of our practices with every, with every patient that we see, not just patients with developmental disabilities. Yeah, there's a long list of things that we need to cover. I mean, I've gotten to where, I mean, I just asked for more time to do my physicals because it's a long checklist and you don't want it to be just a rudimentary check the box. I mean, you want to hear, we should want to hear the response. Are you struggling with thoughts of suicide? Are you depressed? Are you, you know, what is your sexual orientation? You know, but to ask the question maybe doesn't take time, but to listen to the answer and what the needs are is, you know, that takes time. And people with autism are truly complex patients that the listeners have to remember, you can bill on time. You can schedule a longer set of visits and bill for the time that it takes so that you don't have one hand on the doorknob and the patient senses your, you know, your need to get on to the next patient. Yeah, I've had lots of parents on the podcast that have said it's so important that physicians convey to them that they have time. And they said, maybe you don't, but if you just sit down and can put your computer laptop away for a minute and just listen, even if it just takes a few extra minutes, that that makes a big difference. 
So, well, listen, let's just jump right into the clinical report, which we could probably talk about for several hours, but we'll, we'll try and keep it concise. But why don't we talk about the first part about it, which is identification and, you know, screening and what should we be doing? Yes, I think, you know, as I just mentioned, the pediatrician is in a unique position. And by pediatrician, I'm including other healthcare providers, the PA, the nurse practitioner. The primary care provider has the real honor of knowing families and being trusted by families so that seeing children develop and being available for conversation and to really be mindful, as you pointed out, in interactions and listening allows families to develop the trust that permits them to share concerns about behavior and development when given the opening so that surveillance or keeping tabs informally is a very important part of developmental and behavioral screening and assessment, but it's not the only part. And what we know from prior literature is that no matter how nice we are as pediatric clinicians, we're really pretty bad at subjectively identifying developmental and behavioral conditions. You got to ask. And a lot of families want to make you happy or don't necessarily by happy responding in the affirmative to your questions. And many families, especially families who don't have older children, may not perceive that something is atypical because in their baby books, they know, oh, my child's supposed to walk at one. And oh, you know, he's supposed to say mama and dada. But more social milestones are really not known to most families. So that imposing universal screening for autism, imposing a structure by which we as educated and knowledgeable child health professionals ask families about social milestones allows us to identify children at risk. And I'm going to say it a slightly different way, that the Academy of Pediatrics recommends general developmental screening at 9, 18, and 30 months. And general developmental screening is that, does he walk? Does he say mama? Can he feed himself with a spoon? Can he stack two blocks? And that picks up on really important domains of development, cognition and learning, communication, adaptive skills, fine and gross motor skills, but it doesn't pick up on the, the je ne sais quoi social interaction. Is your child using their communication in an interactive way? Are they integrating their eye gaze with facial expression and gesture so you know specifically what they want? How connected is your child with other children? How are they using gesture? And these specific screening measures that are recommended at 18 and 24 or 30 months for autism pick up on those core developmental skills that go along with social communication. And the reason why screening is recommended then isn't random. It's not just because we happen to have an 18-month visit. It's because that's when these skills come online in the brain. And we can begin to pick up where social communication, that social interaction that lets our brains connect and understand each other can be identified through observable behavior. So the, what we have in, the, in early childhood are multiple visits with the pediatrician that are based on, you know, well, child care. You know, when, do you, when are you looking for nutritional problems? When do they need immunizations? You know, all the things that go into the bright futures, picking these times, these intervals for the visits, and then overlaying when is the right time to ask about these developmental and behavioral symptoms. The reason why you screen is because you have a high frequency, a high prevalence condition you can identify it, and there's something you can do about it. 
And there was no need to screen before we understood what the core symptoms of autism were, before there was something you can do about it. And the, we can't cure it, but we can do something about it. You know, early intervention as a federal program mandates that children at high risk or with designated conditions get free intervention. The federal legislation around special education mandates that children three to 21 get a free and appropriate public education. So you screen because there's something that's common, like autism. You know, 1.7% of, of children in the US, so it's common. We have an intervention, it may not be the same intervention everywhere, and it is not necessarily curative, but it is helpful. And that really drives the purpose of universal screening. Uh, there was controversy several years ago because the question of, well, so, you know, with universal screening, not everybody can get intense services. So, you know, why do it? And how do you know if children who are screened actually benefit more from services? And how do you know that people don't have stress if they're in that false positive group in screening before they get assessed? I've been a developmental pediatrician for over 30 years, and not once has a family said to me, you know what, Dr. Hyman, I am so sorry my child was diagnosed later. I am so sorry that he got services, and I'm using the word he because of the prevalence of autism. I should use the word they. You know, autism is, is a four to five to one male to female um, predominance. And the more recent data, there was a lovely study that was done in Utah that documented that children who are screened were diagnosed on average 10 months earlier. And 10 months doesn't make a big, isn't a big difference when you're my age. 10 months is huge if you're three and a half years old. And it's huge if you have a family who needs an explanation for why their child only eats three foods and can't talk. So interesting. You said that yesterday. I was in clinic and one of the kids on my schedule was there, not for any other particular reason, but I saw on the problem list um, that they had autism. And I just, because I was going to do these interviews said, so how early was your child diagnosed? And she said, just this past May. And I said, well, how soon did you know that something was up? And the family said, you know, at 18 months, something was up. So I, you know, I know that earlier intervention for the reasons you mentioned that the brain development, which is, it's like a fertile ground for both directions. Either you think about the effects of adversity, the, the huge impact on the young developing brain and on the same end, positive experiences can make right. such a huge improvement too. So let's go there. And it's not necessarily perfect. We don't know all the causes and reasons, but in the clinical report, there's so much information about, you know, what are the potential reasons? And I think you nicely addressed because, you know, parents ask that all the time, why? And I did a previous podcast with a geneticist and we talked a lot about the uh, microarray and that we should be offering it, but we need to be careful when we're offering it that perhaps we get a geneticist involved at the front end because there's all these things about the ethics of it that I hadn't even thought about, and also the expertise. You know, I'm not a geneticist for sure. So I think that early intervention and is just when I talk to people in this field, it is the common thread early yes. recognition, early referral every time. And so, so what I heard you saying is that, and I think what the Bright Futures recommendations are, is that we do the general developmental screening. I have to say in our clinic, because we love doing, and we use the ages and stages questionnaire, I'm not advertising that or anything, but that's the one we use. 
we use it from two months to five because we love it so much. It's such a great okay. tool and the parents love it. It gives them things to, you know, ask them questions that they hadn't thought about. But then also doing the MCHAT at 18 and 24 months and that we should be doing that routinely. But aren't there some things that you might even see earlier? Are there any screening tools that would pick up those things at nine months, a year? Um, You asked the $64 trillion question and screening and how early to identify and how early to intervene will be the topic of the next clinical report in 10 years that, yes, the earliest identification possible will help families. There's just an article that came out this week that's preliminary that suggests that if you introduce a social intervention at the first time early in childhood, you know, the first year of life even, actually the second year of life after one, that you can improve social communication. The, for the pediatrician, the critical aspects are universal screening at the standard times, ongoing surveillance, because the screening tools that we have in wide use are largely parent report. And when you have a positive screen, for example, on the MCHAT, to make certain you're applying it correctly by having families clarify the items and referring if you cannot do a second level screener like the STAT in your own practice, the real challenge for the next few years is going to be helping the systems get patients from that worry stage to screening to diagnosis to services, and people drop out at each of those steps. So screening is important. The ethics of screening is tremendously important because as your geneticist probably told you, there are lots of biologic risk factors that can be identified but aren't necessarily autism. And there's a false positives, both on the MCHAT and other screeners, require a level of judgment on the part of the clinician to know what to do with that the MCHAT is a wonderful tool. It's free. You can put it in your electronic medical record. It's easy to use. It has wide uptake. And if you screen positive on the MCHAT, not everybody has autism, but they have something that's worthy of intervention. Um, That was something that I kind of, I just want to stop you there because I think it was so important that, and correct me if I have the numbers wrong, that if there was a score of eight or more that the likelihood was much higher that there may be autism. But if they were in that three to seven range, even though it may not be autism, there was a very significant percent that will have some neurodevelopmental disorder. Do I have that right? You are correct. So, you know, over seven, you refer and that three to seven, you have to think about, could it be an intellectual disability? Could it be a language delay? Could it be preschool ADHD? Could it be a... We used to call it reactive attachment disorder, but the, you know other environmental causes. Could it be a sensory impairment like blindness or deafness that you really need to think about why a child might not do well on a social and emotional measure? And there's no substitute for a knowledgeable pediatric provider. And you know, I think that. I'm sure you'll have other podcasts about the ethics of screening, preclinical screening, screening earlier in life before symptoms develop. What that means until you have really good data on the meaning of those screening tools. Similarly, with other more perhaps multimodal or biologic tools, multimodal might be something like the Cognol product that's not ready for prime time because you know, if we're talking about universal screening, you need a large data set of unselected children. We know that younger siblings are at dramatically increased risk for autism. We know that small preemies have like seven times the rate of autism as term infants. We know that certain genetic disorders like tuberous sclerosis have astronomical rates of autism. Those are kids that a primary care provider should have under a microscope. 
And the however, many children with these high-risk conditions have autism. The largest number of children with autism have no known cause. And it's that universal screening that pediatricians really need to be attentive to, refer for assessment, and not lose those families in the EMR. I like what you say about screening and surveillance and the difference because with the screening, even those kids who pass the screening test, it doesn't mean that you should let your guard down and not pay attention. I mean, really, I think what we do in pediatric primary care is pay pay attention. That's our job. We, we know what typical or, you know, some people may call it normal development looks like. And I think we're pretty good at recognizing like, mm, this isn't right. I don't always know what it is, but my radar goes up like mm, something's up here, you know, yeah. and, and some you can walk in the room and go, whoa, I, this really looks like a child with autism. But a lot of kids, you just like, I don't know exactly what it is, but something in that surveillance then. And can you just list those groups at higher risk one more time? Sure. Just I want to make sure listeners caught that. Sure. So one is younger siblings. Younger siblings of children with autism are at dramatically high risk, high risk for autism and high risk for language disorders. Now, if a parent comes to you and says, should I have another child, that really deserves to go to a genetic counselor because it's an individual question. It depends on the genetics of that child. So younger siblings, preemies. An elegant article just came out that looked at the increased risk, the younger, the smaller the preemie is, so that the 22 through 27-weekers are at much, much, much greater risk, but even late preterm infants are at higher risk than term infants for autism, and it may have to do with the etiology that's common to both autism and prematurity. And then there are genetic syndromes at high risk. Examples include tuberous sclerosis. Actually, Down syndrome has a higher risk for autism. And then we will see children whose mothers have certain exposures, like fetal valproic acid exposure, that those babies have, those children have higher risk, so that you need to think about the biology and monitor certain groups more closely. The, your point about surveillance, I actually want two comments, if you'll let me. Sure. Um, one is that when people criticize the MCHAT and other screeners as not picking up children at 30 months, now I'm an autism expert, and that's no surprise to me. Because if 60% of people with autism have typical range cognition, many of those children are not going to be seen as socially typical until they're in the social environment of preschool or kindergarten or first grade or seventh grade. It's, you know, the, the and when I say mild to the families, they're not mild symptoms, but the milder symptoms may not be functionally impairing until the demands on that child are more socially sophisticated. So surveillance can't end. And the other comment I want to make is that one of the things the clinical report emphasizes is that if a pediatrician can make a diagnosis of leukemia, a pediatrician can make a diagnosis of autism if they're confident in the application of the diagnostic criteria. Now we just need to let insurance companies know that we can do that. I think that was one of the frustrations that myself and I'm sure most of my pediatric colleagues have is that we do make a lot of diagnoses, but in order to get services, there has to be this formal diagnosis that has to include things like the ADOS or the ADIR. And that is a bottleneck, and but without that, they can't get what they need. Now, they may be able to get early intervention through that federal program that you were mentioning or through the schools, but yeah, I wish we could figure out how to get more so, weight there. So what the clinical report recommends, and there's an increasing, very vocal group, especially since COVID, that to make a diagnosis of autism, you need to have clear application of the DSM-5 criteria. And that's done by history. History is often supported by a formal measure like 
the social communication questionnaire or the Gilliam Autism Rating Scale. In clinical practice, it's rarely supported by the ADI, the Autism Diagnostic Inventory, which is a lengthy tool. And to support the history, you need to have some structured way of having clinical observation of the behaviors so that you don't have cognitive dissonance. So a parent isn't telling you, oh yeah, you know, my kid is social and makes conversation and you're looking at a child who just recited to you all the presidents backwards, that you need to have a, a, a way to describe what you are seeing objectively. And there, for young children, there's a second level screener like the STAT, the screening tool for autism and toddlers. And you're referring to the child the, the diagnostic tools that many states require for services like the Child Childhood Autism Rating Scale, the CARS to CARS High Functioning, or the ADAS, the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule. And those are both extraordinarily useful tools to structure your observation of the behaviors, but they're not diagnostic. What they are is a way for you as an educated clinician to apply the diagnostic criteria. And I think states have kind of lost track of serving people versus serving bureaucracies. And it's much easier to tick off, yes, they got that test rather than how did we get to the diagnosis. Do you think with this clinical report that that will put pressure on insurance companies to give more credence to the primary care pediatrician? I mean, do you think that that will come of that? I think it will require advocacy and it will require the kind of documentation and structure in record keeping so that this kind of information can be documented. In addition, pediatricians need to understand the other domains of development that, and you can't see my hands, but with DSM-5, Autism is, is one aspect of the diagnosis. If you layer onto that intellectual disability, executive functions disorders, epilepsy, sleep disorders, feeding disorders, wandering and elopement, that what you have is an incremental um, set of diagnoses that increase severity. So knowing what the language skills are, knowing the cognitive level are all important pieces of the severity of diagnosis, the level of impairment that a family experiences. So I didn't answer your question, which is, do I think that the general pediatrician can make the diagnosis? And the answer is with support and education, because they are in Utah and Washington State and Missouri, but it's, it's a set of iterative educational efforts that we all need to get behind so that children are served early and effectively. Do I think that the really hard diagnoses where you have comorbid mental health conditions are going to be made in primary care? That's not going to be soon because those, are, those do require additional tools. There is so much complexity in this. I mean, it is really a layered disorder. And there's so many other things to keep in mind. And again, as a primary care pediatrician, I, you know, our plate is stacked high and to try and be efficient and, you know, not keep people waiting. Um, I think there's that, but I do think that we're frustrated about how we can, you know, especially when you, when you know, when you know that this is a child that meets every criteria for autism, they have autism. And yet there are these continued barriers you and I had talked a little bit before this, and I wondered about some educational programs that might really push pediatricians to the next level. Can you talk for just a minute about some of these ECHO projects for autism and about yes. what, what does that do? Um, so the ECHO, E-C-H-O, isn't a cardiac test. What it is is a, an approach that's used for telementoring. It's a community-based um, community of primary care providers and that are called spokes and a hub team that does problem solving around real cases to think through how you manage the common comorbidities of autism and as well as how to make diagnosis and be sensitive to the, um, 
the factors that go into diagnosis help pediatricians really gain the confidence and the expertise to provide the medical home to complex patients like this. Their eco-autism communities, Command Central is at the Missouri. We have an echo. There are echoes all over the country that meet a couple of times a month to discuss cases. And it's a very inclusive way to spread knowledge. It takes knowledge out of subspecialties because we recognize that there are so few developmental pediatricians, there are so few child psychiatrists that we need to share what we've learned. The other thing that we had talked about previously is that there are all these secrets. You know, there are these fabulous toolkits and resources that these people spend a lot of time working on and that nobody knows about. An AAP toolkit has one pagers, a, low, a fairly low reading level for pediatricians, either for their own education or to share with parents to educate them about things like sleep problems and toileting refusal in kids with autism. Um, on the Autism Speaks webpage, there are uh, longer toolkits on multiple topics that are very appropriate to share with families. The reading level is a little higher. And what I find from my residents is that they will read the toolkits and then they'll be able to counsel families about how do you toilet train a child without language. Or how do you talk to the family of a nonverbal um, teen about sexuality? So that they're really, and they're, unlike the AAP toolkits, these are free. You mentioned something you kind of touched on, and I, I want to make sure that I don't forget to include this, is you talked about wandering. And when you and I had talked prior to this podcast, you had said there are some specific safety things that we should be mindful of. Wandering was one of them. Could you talk a little bit about some of those, those risks, those safety issues? Yes. Thank you so much. Um, you know, when we talk about autism, we talk about the common medical comorbidities of sleep, of seizures, of constipation, food refusal, dental hygiene. But the major cause of death among children and youth with autism is drowning. In my clinic, and I'm getting chills just saying about this, we lose a patient to drowning about every two years. Mm. And it's chilling because we have an active QI pro quality improvement program to counsel families about wandering, counsel families about safety. People with autism have perhaps less social awareness of danger, may be driven to to things that they're obsessed about, like water, may not respond to their name if someone calls them if they run out into traffic, and may have hyperactivity, which we can talk about as well, and, and impulsivity in terms of running off. So that families, about half of families report that their under, under five-year-olds with autism have wandered off and it's been scary to them. And if you have any parents listening to your podcast, they'll be bobblehead dolls because they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, my kid ran off into a parking lot. I had to get a handicap parking sticker. I had to put locks on all the doors because he'd run out of the house when he saw the trash truck. They're terrified that their houses are going to burn down because they have those deadbolt locks that they can't leave the key in. And the number of different news reports that you see about bad things that happen to people with autism and other intellectual disabilities because of um, wandering, elopement, and drowning, you know, attraction to water. There's a news report every day. There's a terrific resource called the Big Red Safety Box that can be obtained online. They have three versions, one for families, one for schools, and one for first responders, police and ambulance and fire people. And I do think that pediatricians need to be aware that the ways that you counsel families of toddlers about safety, including pica, putting non-food items in their mouths, that 
for people with autism, you need to continue that counseling through, you know, indefinitely because of these real serious risks, both from ingestion of non-food items. We had a patient with autism in, in the hospital not too long ago who had a, basically an intestinal perforation from eating insulation. And I think that almost anyone who has a big autism pro- practice knows about patients whose pica extended beyond childhood. So drowning, wandering, pica, it's not about a GPS. So you find them at the bottom of the pool. It's about prevention. Sure. And I think there was one other one that I think was discussed in the clinical report, probably in that older group was suicide risk. Yes. And you're an expert on that. I think that pediatricians really need to be aware that young people with autism are not unaware that they're different and have high rates of anxiety, high rates of depression, and that you need to provide for your patients with autism the same level of care you would provide to any other patient. There is an increased risk for suicidality among youth and adults with autism, and really including depression screening and following up on um, concerns about suicide is is tremendously important. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know that I'm necessarily an expert, but I sure have spent a lot of time trying to learn and educate myself and help educate other people. But, you know, when it remains the second cause of death for our teens, I mean, we just, you know, need to keep our eye on the ball. And I know that's another thing that the Bright Futures is considering and kind of out for public comment right now is to consider including suicide screening specific, not just depression screening, but specific suicide screening for our teens universally. So we'll, we'll see what, what develops from that. But so uh, just to recap the warning or the su- the safety things you mentioned, pica, wandering, drowning, and suicide are some of the top ones. Well, I, this has just been such a robust conversation. And, and again, I'm thinking in my head of the pages of the clinical report and all these things that we could spend time talking about. But just in closing, are there some specific takeaways that you have for listeners? Yes. Screen early and often and continue surveillance. Do not hesitate to refer for diagnosis. Indeed, any positive screen needs to be followed up on. Treat the comorbid conditions, be they medical or behavioral. 50% of people with autism can be diagnosed with ADHD, slightly less with anxiety. So consider the medical comorbidities. And we talked earlier about transition. Be aware of the multiple aspects that go into transition planning, not just the medical. And lastly, one of the things that's really, you know, in our careers, you're in my career, careers, what we've learned is that our partners in care are the patient and the family. And teaching families that they are part of the solution, engaging in shared decision-making, having educated families and patients so they can make choices that are right for them, I think is something, it's an evolution that it's not abrogating or abandoning our expertise and our training, but what it is is adding a teaching and listening component to care for patients with complex illness. I think a really lovely follow-up to that is the podcast that will be next following yours is with a group of clinicians who talk about their areas of expertise, OT, speech, another uh, developmental behavioral pediatrician, and then an ABA leader. And I think that they all say the goal is what are the goals of the family and how do you help parents be the primary teacher to create, you know, magic and joy? How do you find that? Because we all want that for all of our kids. And it's harder with these children and their parents to find that sweet spot, you know, but everybody wants it. The kids do for sure. 
and how nice for us too when it when the parents are sharing these joyful interactions and moments i just you know think of when a kid comes in and there's been such a tremendous improvement in their social skills or language and i'm like wow what happened <laughs> this is awesome yeah, i think one of the things that we again is everything is an evolution we've had an evolution of understanding the term neurotypical and we see the world through our eyes that in your future podcast when you have the, the young people with autism they see the world through their eyes and that's normal too it's just a different normal and we have to understand how both of our normals can live together so that we as pediatricians can support their journey and their well-being. And as you put it, the joy of both patient and family on this journey. And it's it may not be what makes an individual with autism happy, may not be what makes their parent happy, but both of their happiness is well, and when you see a, a delighted parent and a child who is also delighted, I mean, how can it not make your day? I mean, that's the best part about pediatrics is that, you know, you come to work and every day somebody makes your day and that's the best. Well, in closing, I wanted to ask you if you could go back and talk to yourself as med student resident, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, that's a really hard question. The advice would probably be, to laugh more and take more pictures and spend more time with my own children. Yeah. But that's not a professional, that's a personal reflection. Oh no. Yeah. But you know, we are people, right? <laughs> so no, I, and actually I'm, I think several guests, I always ask it cause I think it's a fun question, but lots of people I, say that, you know, that they wish they, they, you um, know, have find joy, find time, you know, do the fun and, thing. Um, I think, I think that what I, would reflect on is that I would listen more and talk less. Yeah, that's that's one for me for sure. Well, listen, Susan, this has been so helpful. And I think you touched on a lot of high points. Again, I would refer listeners to the clinical report and I'll put the link in the show notes along with several of the other references. I think the one step that we could all do is the big red box. Just look it up and see what how it could apply to use in your practice. And then Maybe looking at those Autism Speaks and the AAP Toolkit one-pagers, especially about safety and making sure that we're identifying those safety risks and handing that out to our families and talking about it. So that was really, really helpful. Well, thank you again for your time and and for the work that you do for kids. Thank you. Thank you so much to today's guest. And before I get to the show takeaways, I want to repeat the CME information that you will need in order to claim CME for this podcast and the upcoming next two podcasts. This episode is one of a three-part series of podcasts on autism spectrum disorders. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the joint providership of Michigan State University and the Michigan chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Michigan State University is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Michigan State University designates this Internet Enduring Material activity for a maximum of 1.0 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. All planners, reviewers, and faculty presenters have nothing to disclose. The following commercial organization, Cognoa, provided non-restricted educational grants to support this CME activity. Participants will be able to claim CME by reading the activity instructions for participants and using the CME claim link both listed in the show notes. If you have any difficulties with CME, please contact the CME office at spring18 at msu.edu or by calling 517-884-8871. All of the information, again, can be found in the show notes regarding how to claim your CME. 
So here are the takeaways from today's discussion, which was really rich, and I hope you got a lot of good ideas. So number one, pediatricians are in a unique position to assess children over time for physical, emotional, and social milestones, and the recognition of autism spectrum disorders falls squarely in our laps. Number two, screening utilizes evidence-based tools such as developmental screens like the Ages and Stages questionnaire, just one of the ones that's available, and the MCHAT revised follow-up at regular intervals to identify and assess milestones. Universal screening for autism spectrum disorders is recommended at 18 and 24 months. This is stuff that we do pretty routinely, and honestly, I hope listeners are all doing routine developmental screening. If you're not, this is a really good opportunity to look at work processes and begin implementation. Number three, children may pass a screening tool at one point, but routine surveillance may bring a parent or clinician concern into focus at any point. Surveillance is essentially keeping tabs with eyes on at every visit. So again, just because somebody passed a test at one point doesn't mean that a concern might not come up down the road. Number four, ongoing research is essential to improve the recognition of autism spectrum disorders and to evaluate and develop interventions that optimize outcomes. Number five, an MCHAT RF score of eight or greater warrants urgent referral as those children are at high risk of autism spectrum disorders. And a 2014 paper reported that children whose MCHAT RF score was over three had nearly a 50% risk for an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis and a 95% chance for a diagnosis that merited developmental and or behavioral intervention. So again, I think this is really important that the screening tool might not be a diagnosis for autism, but it is identifying something that is of concern. And so those kids that are kind of in the middle, they may have a neurodevelopmental disorder that warrants our intervention. Number six, pediatricians and pediatric clinicians can and should make a diagnosis when children meet criteria and should refer to early intervention programs anytime there are developmental concerns. I'm going to repeat that. Should refer at any time there are developmental concerns, even if they do not meet diagnostic thresholds. Number seven, 60% of children with autism spectrum disorders have normal cognitive abilities, and those are the children that are often missed with early screening and may not be identified until the social demands exceed capacity. And again, I think this is those kids that do really well, very bright, but socially struggle later on. And we just have to kind of keep this in the top of our mind that the diagnosis may come later. Children with repetitive behaviors and difficulties with social interactions, ongoing surveillance. So again, there's that word surveillance. Number eight, comorbid medical conditions such as GI and sleep disorders and mental health conditions, for example, ADHD and anxiety are common and should be addressed and treated. This is sometimes where things can get complicated, particularly those kids with difficult verbal expression. We sometimes see those kids with a lot of aggression, and those behaviors can be very difficult for families. Number nine, younger siblings of children diagnosed with autism spectrum disorders, premature infants, and those with genetic syndromes such as Downs are at higher risk of autism spectrum disorders. So again, we need to keep our eyes on those kids who are siblings of a child with an older SIB uh, with autism diagnosis. Number 10, pediatric clinicians should educate all families about safety concerns. And for children with autism spectrum disorders, need to emphasize the increased risk of drowning, pica, wandering, and for older children, suicide. And I thought this was a really interesting point that I really hadn't thought about as Susan described it. So I think that warrants some very specific discussion about these risk factors. Number 11, there are many resources online, and I'll include many of those in the show notes. These would include the AAP ASD Toolkit, Autism Speaks Handouts, and the Big Red Box. Number 12, 
Dr. Hyman's key points include A. Screen at key intervals and refer early for any developmental concerns. B. Practice surveillance and keep tabs informally. C. Treat comorbidities. D. Address transitioning beyond the pediatric medical home early. And E. Partner closely with the patient and family and be mindful of the patient's own personal goals. I think this is the most important of everything we've said today is that the patient, the child, the teen is at the center of everything we do and really should drive the ship as far as guiding what interventions they feel are most useful to them. Thank you so much for listening today. Again, please refer to the show notes for information on claiming CME. And I look forward to our next upcoming two episodes that will also talk further about autism spectrum disorders intervention. And then a real treat is um, a conversation with two young men on the autism spectrum who will share some thoughts with us. Thank you so much for everything you do. And I look forward to you joining me next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.